the personal connection with customers, partners, your colleagues, it's the most important thing. And to me, my 40 plus year career is a series of stories. I used to have a boss that would always say, hey, big guy, you know, and he said that to everyone. The fact that he said that like that, I knew he didn't know people's names. If you're all a, the big guy, then no one's the big guy, right? You're, if somebody doesn't know who you are. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here, Jubin. Am I welcoming you or are you welcoming me? I'm in the, I'm in the Chateau de Steel right now. I don't know who's welcoming who. I'm glad you're here to, to see the house. Next time you have to come down to the ranch down in, in Heber Valley. I like the digs here. It's, it's a nice. Well, this, this is a famous room you're in. It's called the Beaver Bar. This was probably where I spent more time than any other place in our house for the six and a half years we've lived here. It's uh, named... Because when we moved in, my wife and my sister-in-law unpacked all the boxes that were shipped from Atherton out here when we moved. And for two weeks, they were like in sweats and t-shirts, just paper cuts and their hair was pulled back. And I'd call them on my way back from the office every day and say, how's it going? They'd say, oh, we've been busy beavers all day. We're beavering away. And I said, oh, meet me in the beaver bar. So I got to do my... Tom Cruise impression of uh, of cocktail, <laughs> making them drinks behind the bar here every night for like two weeks. And that's how it became the Beaver Bar. And we actually had a pin at one point from Google Maps because people would come here because they heard there's a party at the Beaver Bar. We'd have our party invites. And so if there's enough people looking for a location, Google pins it. Come so on. It was the Beaver Bar. You it's, probably had some pretty legendary parties here. Oh, it's a lot of great parties. Okay. Here. I was thinking when I was driving up here, how the hell do you get groceries? That was the biggest challenge. That's one of the reasons why we're moving down off the mountain into the valley. My wife or I would be off doing some errands somewhere and she'd call and say, oh, if you're going into town, pick up provisions for the week. So I'd be at the grocery store loading up a thousand dollars worth of meats and stuff just to make sure we wouldn't run out and milk because you don't want to like schlep up and down this mountain very often. No, it's a trek. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing place, but it is very remote, you know, and that's the beauty of it, but it's also not that convenient. Does it remind you, have you been to Marta's camp in Tahoe in North yes. Star? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that. Yep. Anyway. Very remote. It's beautiful. Yeah. So glad to be here. This is a hell of a place to do the first remote literally remote podcast. So I get all of these things started the exact same way. So I'm going to read your background back to you. I'm going to screw it up. So when I do, just go ahead and correct me. I won't take it personally. And then we can use that as kind of our launching point for the show. Great. All right. Got your BS in civil engineering from Bucknell, 
73. Then you went to IBM. You had a- No, 77. 77, you graduated? <laughs> yes. Okay, 73, don't you started. Don't make me any older than I am. I didn't even get past bullet one <laughs> and I'm already screwing this thing up. Then you went to IBM and you had a quick math, 23 year run there, right? Um, That's and, correct. And that culminated with you being kind of the GM, VP, doing most of the sales, basically. Running sales for the most part. Ish. Yeah, I well, I ran sales for IBM in Asia. I was there for four years. And then I ran sales for one of the largest regions in the US. It was about a third of the US, about $10 billion in revenue and 10,000 people. And IBM is huge today, but back then they were even bigger. Got so it. yeah. Okay. And then you went to Ariba for call it a year and a half-ish, less than two years, EVP of worldwide sales. Then you went to Salesforce. At the time, it was doing 22 million of revenue. You were sub 200 employees, like employee 175-ish, right? You started as the president of worldwide sales and were kind of Mark's right-hand man for all things go-to-market. And then he promoted you to chief customer officer, whatever the hell that means, in probably eight years into your run there. And then you spent about four years doing that. Then you went to insidesales.com as the president and chief customer officer, two years doing that, went to Yex, you were the president and chief revenue officer, three years of that. Then you boomeranged back to Salesforce in October of 2020, which is two years ago? No, just a little over a year ago. <laughs> a year ago, man. Okay, <laughs> that's incredible. Okay, so then you were the president of global strategic customers for most of the last year. And then as of a month or two ago, you were the global key account president. This is all nomenclature. Yeah. It's all, you know, at, at a certain point. You don't point, strike me as a title guy anymore. Titles don't matter. <laughs> if you have to rely on a title, you're in trouble. And that's what always worries me when somebody comes and says, oh, I'm wor I want this title. Well, if you have the influence and if you're making the contributions, you don't need the title to back that up. But yeah, it's, some of the titles are fun. Like the chief customer officer, when Mark at the time I was going through some personal things and Mark came to me, I was thinking of taking a sabbatical and Mark said, no, I want you to stay, but I'm going to take all your operational responsibilities away. We'll give that to this guy, Frank Van Vienendahl, who was my co-president at the time. And I'm just going to have you focus on customers and closing deals. You'll be my proxy for these big strategic deals and you travel around the world no operational ownership and you're going to be called my chief customer officer. And I'm pretty sure no one's actually been able to challenge me on this claim that I was the first chief customer officer in the industry. This would have been like 2009, 2010. And now almost every company mm -hmm. that I deal with, especially in technology has a chief customer officer. And usually chief customer officer is actually alluding to post sales. Chief customer officer now, at least the ones that I've had on the show, not unilaterally, but more often than not are post sales customer success rather than the president or the CRO who's generally, you know, pre-sales. Pre yeah, I think it's a mix. I've seen it all different. When Mark described it to me, he said, look, you have all these relationships, you've worked on all the biggest deals in the company's history at that point. And the teams trust you. They know you, they'll bring you in to help you close deals and just leverage your relationships and go be the face of Salesforce to the customer. Yeah. Before I dive into Salesforce, 
What was your first ever job? My first ever job? Well, I'd have to go back to being a paper boy back when I was like 10 years old, you Mm -hmm. know, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I'm one of seven kids growing up. My dad and mom, they didn't really focus on making money. My mom had been a school teacher and my dad when they met, but my dad worked for New Jersey Bell Telephone for like 40 years. And so I decided early on that I was going to be independent. I went off and started this paper route in Bucks County, grew it to like the largest paper route in, in Bucks County, 140 customers. And, and I became kind of the banker for the family. And it was great. You know, I could buy my own clothes. I could take my family out for fast food dinners. And it was awesome. You would treat the family at like 12 years old. Oh yeah. And I would loan out money to my parents. You're kidding. That was a great learning experience because I really, it was like, I ran a franchise, you know, I was running my own business and I did that probably about four years. And then I had a whole bunch of other jobs through high school and, you know, that led to college and then going on to uh, IBM after college. Obviously in preparation for all of these interviews with guests, it's a small valley. Everybody kind of knows everybody. So especially with you, I was able to do a lot of call it reference checks, background checks. What am I getting into? Give me some stories. What do you got? And there was a, a few consistent kind of narratives that I'll paint for you. The first is Jim's a legend. He's the best. He's amazing. He's the most successful person that I know. And I kept hearing that. And I was thinking, what does Jim feel about that? When you hear that now, you started out, you know, you're 11 years old to 15 years old. You're putting food, giving money to your family. Like you're always preordained for this kind of success. Now you look back on it 40 years later, when you hear that, how do you internalize that? First of all, it's flattering to hear it, but it's like an out-of-body experience. Like when you're in it, especially in sales, which I've basically been in for 43 years now, you can never get cocky, never get arrogant. You have to be humble. You have to be genuine, sincere. And so I, I tell my salespeople all the time, look, you got to be gritty. You know, you got to be hungry for the deal. You can't take your customer for granted. It's good to be confident and it's good to be passionate, but it's really a detriment to your career if you go the other way, which Mm -hmm. is overconfident, cocky and arrogant. And we've seen that in businesses. So I never took anything for granted. And I feel today like I can't rest on my laurels. You know, Mm -hmm. I came back to Salesforce a year ago and a lot of people, since I left six and a half years ago, there's probably been 50,000 people that have hired in the company. So they don't know me. So I have to re-earn the respect and reinvent myself all the time to stay relevant and to stay in the moment where I'm delivering value. Otherwise you hear about these people that come in and they just assume that they're going to still be revered by everyone. That's not the case with me. I view it like I have to earn everybody's trust and respect every single day that I'm, I'm working. So I never look back and say, oh yeah, well, I was so good so many years ago. I, you're never hundred percent happy with your performance. You always think you can do better. You can all, you always strive to, to do more. And I'm very proud and my career has been so gratifying, but I'd never rest on my laurels if, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. You've said before, and I just wanted you to kind of explain this a little bit more. If you're not enjoying your job, you're never going to give it your best. Can you unpack that? 
I kind of learned this at, at IBM, they were all about your development. They would move you into different jobs every couple of years. And I never, ever got stale on the job. I was always excited. I always had that beginner's mindset of learning new things and being excited to meet a new team and to build these new relationships, move to different geographies. And that became very exciting. And there are people at IBM that would want to stay in the same job for a long time. And that was fine too. As long as they were motivated, they were comfortable doing it. They somehow got the motivation to do it well over and over again in the same role. But then I'd find people that would, they'd start complaining and they talk about maybe they didn't like their customer or they don't like their boss. And I say, you know, there's so much opportunity out there even within IBM, you should talk to your management about going to do something else. You you obviously earn that opportunity by Mm -hmm. doing a really good job at what you're doing now. But I've had so many different roles in my 43 years that to me, it's like 43 different careers in Mm -hmm. 43 years. And that's what makes it exciting to me. And I tell people all the time, if, if I hear them whining or complaining, don't let that drag your career down. You're going to poison the well with the people around you and you'll create a toxic environment and you have to get out of that. If you don't like what you're doing, find another role, learn some new skills, go to a different company or a different job within your company. I tell people that all the time. Now this is just my curiosity running wild, but you are the number one rep at the IBM sales school that gave you the Wall Street territory, which then gave you the ability to run kind of wild and and do just amazing things selling. And that was kind of the start of your career. Were you doing like the three martini lunches on Wall Street? I just, (laughs) I gotta know. (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that. IBM was considered the boot camp of sales training back in those days. And there's other companies you hear about, like ADP has an incredible sales program and you've got EMC that's now part of Dell. But IBM back in the 80s, when I started in 1978, 43 years ago, it was the place to go. And and they'd say, look, uh, look to your right and look to your left. Half of you are going to be gone in a year, which is true. Like a lot of people didn't make it through because it was such a rigorous program. And when I joined the Wall Street office at 77 Water Street, right at the end of Wall Street, they basically said, we're not going to let you even meet with a customer until you get through a year and a half of training. We're going to put you through the grinder. And so the first few classes you go through are very rigorous technical training programs, which even though I was a civil engineering major in college, these were really tough. And I was a very average student at best because I'm a a very social person. I even at college, you know, I was voted by my classmates to be the most successful at anything other than civil engineering because they knew, they said, Jim, you, you've got, you know, you're too, that an accolade? You're, you're too social to be like sitting in a design room, you know, in the back room with a, back then a slide rule and a, a calculator. Anyway, I went to all this training and I was kind of mediocre throughout all of it. And finally, the finishing school was called sales school. And this is the one that determines what your territory is going to be. And everyone, it's so intense. It's like 25, 30 people from all over the world going to this class in Poughkeepsie, New York. And 
I went into that. My boss and my boss's boss pulled me into the room and said, look, you're either going to get the worst territory or the best territory, depending on how you do in this class. And this, I, it, it was like my social skills and my engineering skills all came together and I finished first in the class. And it was a big deal at that time. So I came back and- And Wall Street was the territory that you yeah, wanted. And I remember I was so excited. I go into my closet after two weeks of being away. You know, I lived in this tiny little apartment with uh, two other guys on the Upper West Side of New York. And I go into my apartment and IBM back then, uniform was white shirts, white button down shirts. And I go in, all my shirts were balled up in the corner of the closet, kind of moldy with dust and everything. I'm like, oh my God, they're about to ordain me as the first in sales school. I got to look my part. So I put on a gray suit over my t-shirt and draped the tie around my neck and took the subway down from the Upper West Side down to Wall Street. And I went to the Brooks Brothers at Liberty Plaza, which is where the Merrill Lynch building is right across from the World Trade Center at the time. And I go in, I said, this is the easiest sale you ever make. I work for IBM. I need a 16 and a half, 35 button down white, hundred percent Oxford shirt. And the guy says, oh no, you know, you're not going to believe it, but we are out of white shirts in your size, but look at this great gray suit you have. I have this pink shirt that will look so good with it. So I, and, and I'm partially colorblind. I don't use that as my excuse, but I put this pink shirt on. It really looked good. I was like, wow, you know, this is awesome. So I put it on. It looked good with my tie. I walked down Wall Street, go into my office, and I'm in the men's room. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there, and a guy stands next to me. And this was my Harvard undergrad branch manager, this crusty old IBM veteran that was super conservative. And he turns to me and I, I didn't look because you don't look when you're standing there. He says, I see they didn't teach you a goddamn thing in sales school. That's what he said to me. And he was not joking. He didn't smile. He wouldn't talk to me for like two weeks. And <laughs> I didn't get my territory assigned. For, so for two weeks, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, they're I gonna, just blew my opportunity. They're going to blackball me from the territory. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm really fretting, like what, what's going to happen? Finally he calls me back into his office and he says, all right, Jim, he says, what did you learn? And I said, well, I, you know, you can see my score from sales school. You know, I was, he said, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, sales school doesn't make any difference in your career. It's how you interact with people and the image you project. And I said, all right, you're referring to my my indiscretion wearing a pink shirt. And he said, yes. He said, you got to wear the uniform. If you want to be successful at IBM on Wall Street, you have to, and back then I did, I had to wear the uniform. So I, I learned my lesson. I, I kind of snuck a few colored shirts in over the years, you know, and then, then Lou Gerstner came in and in 1993 from Wall Street, he was from American Express as the CEO of American Express. And he asked everybody, why are you all wearing these white shirts? You look like a bunch of lemmings, you know, like all following this. Totally. Anyway. Were you doing the three martini lunches? Oh, yeah. Was that a thing? Sorry. Was that a thing? Sorry, I was Wait, trying actually, to avoid I, before, that question. Before I even get to that, I was a sales development rep, cold outbounds, and for a, a year, I was hankering my boss, Jeff, I'm ready. Put me in the field. Come on. Like, I'm so ready. Now, like, I'm buttoned up. You know, I'm shaving, you know, I'm like, I'm ready to go. And finally he goes, all right, you're a rep now. You can get out of the office. And I set a meeting in San Mateo and it was my first meeting in the field. 
And all morning, I was a wreck. I couldn't have been more nervous. And he was like, I'm going to join you for the meeting. I just want to see how you do. And if I can help you, I want to help you. So at the time I was too broke to own a car. And so I had to Uber to the Caltrain. And then I Caltrained down. I don't know why I didn't just take an Uber straight from my apartment. Caltrained down to San Mateo. And then I had to get from there to the office of the customer. Ended up being almost 15 minutes late to my first ever. And my boss is, is sitting there. And I almost threw up. I was sick to my stomach. I couldn't believe it. And we went through the sales meeting. And, and after immediately, I was like, can I walk you to your car? Started profusely apologizing. Jeff, I'm so sorry. I didn't time for this, the train. And, and he goes, Jimin, it doesn't matter. You were late. Rule number one, just show up on time. You're sweating when you showed up. And he's like, look, it's a good thing I was there, but like, let this be a very early lesson. Never show up late. Just don't show yep. up late. And anyway, it kind of reminds me of your story of the, the white shirts just crinkled up. That feeling is so helpless. It's so helpless. Yeah. No, showing up is important. I mean, you, you got to be there. And back in those days, I'd be in the office at 7.30 every morning and I'd be one of the first ones in and one of the last ones to leave. And to me, just showing that commitment and concern for the business and taking that responsibility was so important. Yeah. Now throughout my, well, when I was in sales throughout my career, if I didn't turn the lights on in the morning, it really stuck with me. I'd be upset. It really stuck with me. Anyway. So the three martini lunches, you want me to talk? About? I want to talk about it. It doesn't feel like right. you want to, but I want, so, to, I want to hear it. I'm nostalgic. I wish those days still oh, existed. Geez. You can imagine Wall Street in the 80s, you know, and this was a crazy time. And I had the banks on Wall Street and one big bank was Manufacturers Hanover Trust, Manny Hanny. And it was an interesting group of customers. I had some amazing customers. And the way things got done back then was you had to build a relationship. It wasn't like today where 80% of what a customer learns about your company and about your business and your products and services, they can learn from the internet. You know, they can do their research online and mm -hmm. they can do their reference checks and everything. Back then I was the conduit from IBM to the customer, everything they learned about IBM was coming through me. Either I'm setting up seminars for them, presentations, bringing them to our office, bringing them on trips to different IBM locations, but I was that conduit. And so the more time they wanted to spend with me was directly correlated to the business that they would buy. Because if they don't want to spend time with you, they're mm -hmm. not going to do business with you, right? That was the key lesson that I had back then, it was all about building that relationship, a trusted relationship. And one crazy story, you might want to edit this out, but I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you it. and you can decide. Can. I was a rookie salesman and I was part of this team. Jim Dorsey was this big strapping Irishman and our top customer. Now you would call this person the CIO, but back then they were the data processing manager for Manny Hanny. And they, they had a budget of probably a couple hundred million dollars a year in technology. And IBM was probably 30% of that, or maybe I think we were close to hundred million. So we had this huge deal on the line and my boss left the office to go meet with this customer, Don Smith at this bar on wall street. Uh, it was called Michael's two back then. And we all wished him luck. We had prepped him and he goes off 
and he starts his lunch. And so they have lunch. They meet at probably 12, 31 o'clock. And about three o'clock, his assistant back then, they were called secretaries. His secretary, Donna Markham, comes running over to me and says, hey, Jim, Jim Dorsey is not feeling well. He is feeling ill. You have to go take over for him at Michael's too with the customer. The customer, they're right in the middle of this discussion about the deal. You got to go over there. And she said, take his car keys. So I grabbed his car keys. I walk in and he looked very pale. He wasn't well. Gave him his car keys. He had a car to take him home outside. Anyway, I sit down and this guy, Don Smith says, are you ready for this? And I said, ready for what? He calls over the waitress and says, he'll have a, it was a gin martini, but it was a special, <laughs> he'll have a tangeray on the rocks with a twist. That's what he, that's what he ordered for me. So two or three of these gin martinis into it, we're talking about the deal and the deal is really, I said, are you, are you going to do this deal or not? This was a massive deal for us. And I was starting to loosen up a little bit. So I was getting into my routine and feeling confident and he's hemming and hawing and he stops and he, he has hiccups right in the middle is probably about five o'clock at night now. So this is like two hours after I got there and he had been there since noon. He was overserved, And so he gets the hiccups and immediately it clicks into my mind. I know how to get rid of hiccups. This was an old college trick, right? So I said, all right, Don, you got to stand up right now, stand up. And so Don stands up and I said, Don, I want you to take three deep breaths. And on the third deep breath, you're going to bend down and touch your toes. So Don goes, <sighs> so the third one, he bends down, touches his toes. And I, I, I smacked him like as hard as I could in the backside. Let's just say, you know, in the butt. No right? way. He goes lunging forward, flies, falls flat on his face. He kind of skids across the, the floor of the bar at Michael's two. And he's lying down. His face is in like a little puddle of beer and other drippings from the bar and his tie is like absorbing the alcohol. And all the people in the bar thought all they heard is a smack and then they see him on the floor. So they just, they figured we had a fight. Yeah. So they come running over and they're restraining me thinking that we had a fight. I said, no, no, it's okay. He's my customer. We're, <laughs> we're working on a deal. And they're like, what kind of sick guy are you to hit your customer <laughs> like that? What is going on here? Anyway, I said, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. So I reached down, he puts his hand up and I pull him up. He says, they're gone. The hiccups are gone. And he gives me this big bear hug. Everyone in the bar starts cheering. And they're like, yeah, these guys are not going to fight. And then he says, steel, we're doing this deal. And he shook my hand. And uh, no way. And so he thought that was the coolest thing. So, but he played a trick on me the next day with my boss. Oh my gosh. My boss calls me and he said, what the hell did you do? Don called me and said, the deal's off. And, uh, that you embarrass him in front of the, all these people. And, and he played a trick and then Don happened to be there and he came out and gave me a big hug and said, you're my man, right? From now on, you're in every deal that we ever do. You gotta be kidding me. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad, I, I'm glad I poked at you for that one. That did not disappoint. Oh my God. <laughs> 
You might have to edit that one out. There's literally not a chance in hell that I edit that out. Not a chance in hell. That did help launch my career. That became a little bit How of How old were you? I was 22 years old. You were 22? Then. Yeah, 22. I might have just turned 23, but I was just a year into oh, the business at that point. Oh my God, what a good story. So even hearing you say that story, and I'm going to jump ahead here and then I'm going to come back, but what struck me about you retelling this story, okay? And this is one of the other things that continue to come up with Jim in the, the narratives. You listed off, you're 22 years old. How old are you now? Can I ask? I'm, I'm, I'm old. I'm 65 now. That, so that was, was 43 years ago. So probably, yeah, I was probably- 43 years yeah. ago, okay? You remember the name of the customer, the name of the restaurant, the time that you had lunch, and the drink that was ordered. I almost forgot the name of the drink, but I, I do remember that. <laughs> and I can't remember what I had for dinner the other night. I literally have had to look up three times the restaurant that I went to on Main Street on Thursday night. So anyway, Mark Wayland. Do you know who Mark Wayland yeah, is? Yeah, of course. Okay, so Mark was a previous guest of the show, now the CRO of Box. And he was, I think, the SVP of Marketing Cloud for Salesforce. And he said a bunch of really flattering things. He's a top of the mountain sales leader. But what sets Jim apart is he has a Rain Man-like ability to remember things. First names, <laughs> last names, spouses' names, where people went to school. Phil, I'm going to butcher his last name, Salmonuk? Salmonek. Yeah. Salmonek. Salmonek, yeah. Said the exact same thing about you. And he said, when you see Jim, he'll ask like, hey, did your daughter get into Cal? The level of detail that you go. And I just heard it right now. And it, well, it really cemented that. Is that natural? How does that happen? Do you practice that? What I've learned in my career is the personal connection with customers, partners, your colleagues. It's the most important thing. And to me, my 40 plus year career is a series of stories, you know, and, the, and it's all about stories. And I remember people and places and events. And I learned early on that if you remember somebody's name, you could forget everything else. You could forget the product you're selling. You could forget so many other things. But if you make sure that you know their name, and I used to have a boss that would always say, hey, big guy, you know, and he said that to everyone. He wouldn't say big guy to women. But the fact that he said that like that, I knew he didn't know people's names. If you're all a, the big guy, then no one's the big guy, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody doesn't know who you are, so when I got my first big job at IBM in 1988, I became branch manager of the New York financial office, which was the office, financial office on Wall Street, much like the one I had started my career in. Now I had 200 people working for me and I had my new assistant put a book together of all the pictures of all the IBM people in my branch and their names. And my wife and I studied this for like, two or three days before I got announced. So when I got announced in this new office, and you know, I was pretty young at that stage, I was like in my early thirties and that was a pretty big $200 million business for IBM running this on Wall Street. And I memorized everybody's names. I had their faces, their names and their positions. And I'd studied this so well. And so when I met people for the first time, I'd say, oh, you're so-and-so, you're Maria or you're Donna, George, Bob. And they were so amazed. And people started talking about like, hey, he, he knows my name. And it didn't matter whether you were the receptionist or 
the top salesperson in the office, I wanted to know everybody's name. And that got me onto this track. I said, geez, that might be one of my differentiators in, in my career, just knowing people's names. And then when I went to Japan with IBM in 1996, I remember, geez, how am I going to remember people's names now in, in a foreign country with Japanese names are tough. And what I learned is on the business cards, the Japanese are very, it's all about the Meishi card, which is the business card. So when you meet somebody, I learned you say, Watashi no Meishi Destozo. And that's basically, you're giving them your Meishi card. And then you say, Hajime Mashite, Jim Steele Destozo, which is very nice to meet you. My name is Jim Steele. And they study your card and then you study their card. It's a sign of respect. It's the first part of the relationship building in Japan. This is a very formal process. And I'd be staring at these cards and they'd all be in kanji. They'd be in, you know, I couldn't read them. They're in <laughs> Japanese. I'm like, and they said their name, but you're hearing a Japanese name and then you're looking at the card. And I'm used to like, if it was a, in English, I'd be able to read. And... <laughs> Somebody taught me a trick. They said, okay, when you look at the card, look at the email address because it'll say Takahashi at IBM.com or Takahashi at NTT.com or whatever the name of the company is. It'll have their name, Udasan. So I learned by looking at the card, I could read their name. And as I started to learn this and started to play this back, I'd be like, oh, Udasan, you know, Takamashi-san. They look at me like, with delight because you said their name. And one other story that got around was at my previous company, Yext, uh, that I was at for four years before I rejoined uh, Salesforce. We had our president's club in the Bahamas and we had a, about 160 attendees, 80 Yext employees with their plus ones. And I did the same thing. I learned everybody's name. I memorized it. I Spouses included. Spouses included. And at the big gala one night, we were on an island. We took a boat over to an island. We were on this island, beautiful setting. And I got up to welcome everyone. I said, I'd like to welcome all of you. And so I kind of had this person yell out, if you mean all of us, then go around. And I, I kind of had this person planted there to say that. I said, oh, so you want me to welcome everyone? And He's like, yeah, let's see if you can do it. Kind of a challenge. I said, all right, here, let me give it a try. So I went around the, to the tables. Everyone was at their tables and I introduced them, the ex-employees and their significant others, every one of the 160. And that- No way. That became pretty- You didn't miss. I didn't miss. I had one delay and I had the name and it- People's out, jaws but, must have been on the floor. Yeah, they thought that was pretty How pretty do you, fun. when you're memorizing like that, do you have any tricks? How do you memorize 160 faces and names? So somebody else told me this. They, they said, they were asked, well, how does he do that? And they said, because he cares. You know, you got to actually want to know somebody's name, right? Because a lot of people, you meet 10 people at a party and I would defy you to go back 10 seconds later and name a third of them again. You yeah. wouldn't be able to do it, right? You just, so what I do, my trick, it's not really a trick. When you say I'm Jubin, I, I say Jubin, great to meet you. And I shake your hand and I, I might ask you how to spell it. You know, if it's a name that I'm not familiar with and I repeat the name a couple of times and I, I'm like Jubin, Jubin, you know, and I get in my mind. 
So when I'm going down, I don't just quickly like, I repeat it. You're so very that's, intentional that, about it. That I'm very intentional about it. That's number one. And then let's say five minutes later, you go off and you come back. I'm like, oh crap, tell me your name again. I'm sorry. Most people are already too embarrassed because they yep. met you once to ask your name. It's more embarrassing for me not to know your name than to ask you your name again. So I'll say, I'm sorry, please tell me. Your name. And then I'll tell you, look, I'm going to ask you a few more times, but I promise you by the end of the night, come back up and challenge me. So I get people to like challenge me. So it gets in my head that, I, geez, I better remember your name because you're going to come and challenge me on it. Wow. And then the worst is now you haven't seen this person in several months, right? And you had this connection that night because you're like, wow, he really knows my name. But now a month later, I'm like, oh, damn. Pressure's on. Well, now you've raised the bar. They are expecting you to know your name. One of my tricks is when I quickly scan the room and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I should know. Now, if I haven't done a deal with you or I haven't been on a call with you or I haven't sold to you or we haven't, then I'm not as embarrassed to ask your name again. But if you and I have been out there and we've done stuff together and we've closed deals together, I need to know your name. Like that would be bad for me. So I'll whisper in Mark Whalen's ear. I'll be like, Mark, remind me, what's that guy's name again? Yeah. Holy crap, you know, I got to yeah. know it. And he'll say, Jim, that's you. And I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so I do that. That's kind of my, my trick behind the scenes. Right. And then when you come up after a month, I'll be like, hey, Juven, good to see you. And you're like, oh my God, we met like right. at that party a month <laughs> ago. Minutes. So that's important. I really obsess on that. I don't know why, but it's kind it's of a ama- thing. It's truly amazing. And this is such a stupid analogy and I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but in Delaware's Prada, which is one of my favorite movies, Meryl Streep walks in to meet all these important people and she has her two assistants next to her, one of them whom's Anne Hathaway. And right before she forgot the person's name that she was gonna come up and, and meet. And it was a very important person. And right before they shake hands, it was Anne Hathaway's shining moment in the movie where she finally earned her credibility when she whispered the name of the person to, to yep. Meryl Streep. And Meryl, you know, Meryl introduced herself and then they went on about it. It's, it's so <laughs> basic, but it's so important. People are- It's an incredible lesson. People wanna be connected, you know? And in this world where the last couple of years we haven't been as connected, it's more important than ever. Yeah. It's incredible. I wish I could keep talking about that. So you joined Salesforce at, like I said, 22-ish million, less than 200 employees. And can I go through from 2014 to the guidance from 2023 and just share some revenue numbers of this business? Because it is one of the most spectacular things that I've ever seen. And I want this to go down on record and someone will listen to this in 20 years from now and just be like, that company was unbelievable. Is that okay? Can I just share some numbers yeah, here? Yeah. So you started, it was 22 million. And then fast forward, call it 12 years from then. In 2014, revenue was 4.1 billion, 15, 5.4 billion, 16, 6.7, 17, 8.4 billion, 18, 10.5, 19, 13.2, 20, 17.1, 21, 21.25 billion, Guidance for this coming year is 26.4 billion and guidance for the following year, 2023 is $31.8 billion. It is growing still at, is that 25%? It's in the twenties for sure. Are you kidding me? So I say that because humble beginnings, you had 35 interviews with Mark when you were trying to get the job. And I guess you weren't trying to get the job, but you had 35 interviews with Mark. What was the craziest round of interviews? Which one was the craziest? 
Well, I had 35 interviews before he would let me interview him. So he wanted me to meet every one of the senior execs at Salesforce. He wanted me to meet his fiance. He wanted me to meet his psychiatrist. And he had me meet with some of the salespeople. He had me meet with customers. He had me meet with all kinds of people. And then finally, I was like, why am I even here? You know, I'd spent all my time with IBM calling on big multinational companies, you know, kind of global 100 companies. And Salesforce was basically a small, you know, it seemed like an SMB kind of company back then. But the more I talked to people, the more I saw that there was something really special, really unique. So having the interview with his psychiatrist was, was pretty out there, but, and his fiance was probably the toughest of all interviews. She threw out a whole bunch of hypotheticals. Like, what kind what of questions would she ask you? She'd be like, okay, so Mark's going to come in and tell you to do something that's completely out of character with your 23 years at IBM. All the conventional wisdom, you could throw it right out the door because yeah. Mark's going to challenge you to do something different and to think different. How are you going to react? And I'm like, whoa, like, and those were tough questions. I had to really think on my feet back then. But, you know, finally I sat down with Mark and I'm, um, I said, Mark, I'm still confused. I said, I'm so impressed with everyone I've talked to. And it's taken me 35 interviews to get to this point where, am I your number one or not? Like, are you going to hire me or not? Like, we're going to do this deal. (laughs) And he said, well, actually, you're my second choice. And then he called uh, John Thompson at Hydric and Struggles. And he said, oh, I've got this other candidate you should talk to, Jim Steeles. But, But I said, Mark, I said, everything I see with Salesforce, you know, 22 million in revenue, you're a small company. Why are you interested in me? I, I've only called on big enterprise customers pretty much all my career. He said, well, Jim, he painted this vision how Salesforce over the next 20 years will become the dominant player in the enterprise software business. And he said, we are going to disrupt the industry. We are going to deliver software as a service versus a product, an on-premise software product. And we're going to change the world of technology. And I need someone to build that team inside of Salesforce that can go into these big enterprises and someone that's got the presence, the experience calling Mm -hmm. on C-level customer executives. And I said, well, what evidence do you have that we can be successful. You can be successful in the enterprise. I said, who's your largest enterprise customer? And he stopped, he paused. Well, he said, Autodesk. And I said, okay, well, Autodesk, that's not a global 2000 kind of company, but they're a respectable tech company. How big are they as a customer? He said, well, they have 200 licenses. They do $200,000 a year. And I started laughing. I said, Mark, honestly, I've never had a customer, even when I was a rookie salesman, less than a million dollars. And you're talking about a $200,000 customer. And he said, Jim, here's the thing. We also have Dell, we have Cisco, we've planted the seed. We've got 50 or hundred licenses. And over time, they're going to grow to big enterprise wide customers that spend millions of dollars. And I said, all right, well, is Autodesk at least a good reference? Because you need a good reference to help promote and evangelize outside other customers. And that word of mouth matters. He said, well, no, they hate us. And I said, what do you mean they hate, they hate us? He, he said, well, 
right after we signed the deal with them, the CFO that signed the deal quit. And he's now our CFO, Steve Cakebread. And the CEO of Autodesk swore to never do business with Salesforce again. And I'm happy to say, by the way, almost 20 years later, Autodesk is an amazing customer oh, of ours. Of and they're, they're much bigger than of they course. were you know, 20 years ago. What an incredible story. Your Twitter handle is Road Warrior 24 seven. Yeah. Can you please explain that? Well, that was a, a Mark Benioff assigned handle. So you have to imagine Twitter 15, 16, 17 years ago. Like it was just a, a nascent company. Like no one knew Twitter back then. And Mark said, Jim, you have to help promote Salesforce and you need to have a Twitter handle. And I, I think I might ask, well, what's Twitter and why, why do I need it? What does it do? And he said, well, I have a, a handle for you because I was traveling nonstop, 24-7 around the world. So he said, your handle is going to be Road Warrior 24-7. And what started that is my first week on the job. So now I'm hired. I start my job October of 2002. My office for the 12 plus years, I was with Salesforce in that first tranche or first segment was always right next to Mark. So I'm in my office that first week and Mark walks into my office and he looks at me and he says, what are you doing here? And I jumped up and I thought he was teasing me. And I said, Oh, I'm your new president, Jim Steele. And I go to shake his hand. He didn't smile. He didn't shake my hand. He said, no, what are you doing here? And he looks around. He says, I don't see any customers. He said, I did not hire you to be an armchair quarterback. I hired you to be the face of Salesforce. You have to go out there, lead by example. I want you in the deals. And the irony was I was, even at IBM, which at times had become very bureaucratic, I was always that guy that wanted to be out with the customer. I always mm -hmm. measured my FaceTime. So that started, this is 2002. That started my 12 and a half year nonstop around the world. I traveled more than anyone else, put millions and millions of miles on in those years. How many nights and a year do you think you're in a hotel? On average in those first 12 years, probably 200 nights a year, 200 plus. And I had to report to the ELT of Salesforce and to our board on a quarterly basis, every call I made, the value of the customer that I was calling on the value of the opportunity that was at stake that I was involved in trying to sell the deal. And then what issues I was hearing from the customer, what was I learning from the customer, what was working good and the bad of Salesforce. So I would share that. So I became kind of that voice of the customer. And that was what Mark ended up saying, Oh, you, you're kind of the voice of the customer. You're sharing all the feedback you're getting as you're meeting, you know, I was meeting 150 customers on average, a quarter face-to-face -face meetings around the world. So I would track these just like I was a rookie salesperson tracking every single call. It was like a, it was, I think I probably- Is that what you mean by measure your FaceTime? Yes. It's all about customer FaceTime. He, every time- track it. Every time Mark saw me in the office, and this was part of the Salesforce culture that we didn't want armchair quarterbacks. We didn't want bureaucracy being created back in the office. We didn't want people- back there just meeting with each other. We wanted everyone in front of the customer because we were evangelizing a new technology model. We were disrupting the industry and you can't disrupt the industry 
sitting in the office. You have to be in front of the customer. And, and we were so excited to share our story that you can imagine all these fired up, passionate, confident salespeople out there just so excited to tell their story to the customer. It's amazing. So at this time, you're 10 years into this run, traveling 200 plus nights a year. Salesforce is ripping. By this point, your career is on fire. You're bona fide at this point. You're a made man. You are the guy at Salesforce, ostensibly, right? I know you probably wouldn't say that, but I'll say it for you. And I guess if it's okay, I'd love to just ask, I'm on the road. I've been on the road for a year and a half almost. I've been living out of a suitcase basically during COVID because I wanted to do something different. And I go to a new city, I give my clothes away to Goodwill, I buy new clothes and I continue to do that through different cities. And there's a tax. And for me, the tax is, well, there's many, but I don't have family. I don't have anything. You had mentioned earlier, like, hey, I was thinking about taking a sabbatical. Do you think that there was a toll that was being took? Yes, I mean, that's the challenge. You have to understand like, Salesforce had become everything to me. I loved every minute because everyone was watching this incredible rise of this company from 2 million to being the dominant player in CRM at the time over Siebel and Oracle, SAP and Microsoft. And our stock was going through the roof and it was the most gratifying thing I'd ever done in my life from a career point of view. But I also had a wife and a daughter at home who, you know, my daughter at the time was a teenager and I was like the weekend father. And that takes its toll, especially when you have a teenage girl. And I did go through a divorce, which was really a painful experience. I got remarried and have now two younger kids. So I'm burning the the candle at both ends. I've got my 32-year-old daughter and I've got Mm -hmm. a 12-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter. And going through that a second time, I did make a commitment to myself that I would not, I balanced my life a lot more than I did in those early years at at Salesforce. You know, it was just, it was so intense and all consuming. You're the road warrior. And I could control it. You tend to gravitate towards things that you're really good at. I should have been a lot better at being a husband and a father at that point. And those are regrets that I have to live with, but I've taken those lessons and applied them to my life now. You know, in the last 10 years, it's been a whole different story, you know, and I have much better work-life balance. And actually COVID, one of the silver linings of COVID was I spent a whole lot more time with my family in the last couple of years. And it's really changed my perspective on how I can actually be effective in my job without having to be 24 seven on the road like I used to be. Yeah, and is that the catalyst for sabbatical? Just kind of realizing like, oh man, I over-indexed yeah, on this Yeah, so when thing. I, I told Mark, I said, Mark, you know, looks like I'm going through divorce and probably gonna get remarried. And I wanna spend a lot more time with my daughter who was in high school at that point, And I need to focus on that. That's more important to me. I should have been much more balanced. And he said, Jim, I get it. He said, let's talk about where you're spending your time and let's figure out how to balance that out. He said, I don't want to lose you. The customers don't want to lose you. The team doesn't want to lose you. Let's just take all the operational burden of your job and move it to my partner, Frank Van Vienendahl at the time, who's just amazing leader and way more operational than I ever was. And so Frank picked that up. And Mark said, look, you still work for me and 
I'm not going to ask you for forecasts. I'm not going to have you do operational reviews. So all the stuff that I used to do in my other 12 hours of my day, I'd be on board calls in London at three in the morning or in Tokyo. And, and he said, look, I just want you to report in every now and then what you're seeing and what you're, what you're hearing from the customers and show me the calls you're making. But it took a huge burden off me and I can yeah. do what I'm, what my passion is, is being in front of customers and, and being that face of Salesforce where I can, we were asking those customers, you have to understand back in 2002, we were like asking these customers, please take that leap of faith with us. I promise you, I commit to you that we're going to make you successful. I will obsess on your success. I'm never going to go away. We are going to out hustle all our competition. We're going to run circles around them. No one is going to be more committed to your success than, than we are. You have my bat phone 24 seven call me and I mean, it was such an obsession with customer success. And that's what I lived in and breathed for all those years. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that. I don't know if you've ever shared this publicly, but can you share the story of Tony Robbins at Sales Kickoff? Oh, geez. <laughs> that was one of the most humiliating things. And <laughs> you don't this have is, to share it if you don't you want know, to. It's, it's, you know, there's something everyone can learn from humility. And I think... I've always tried to be humble and show humility, just not as publicly as that, that situation <laughs> called for. So Mark has gotten to know Tony Robbins very well over the years. And we had Tony come to our sales kickoff meeting that I was actually running, but Tony shows up and he's there because of Mark, right? So Mark says, hey, you have to motivate, you know, we have a 1500 salespeople out here and they're all looking for the Tony Robbins, rah, rah. And I don't know if they talked about it behind the scenes beforehand, but Tony is up on stage and I'm sitting next to Mark and he says, my mission is to turn any failures into incredible successes. He said, and I think the best salespeople learn from their failures. And we as salespeople, we have failures all the time, but we keep getting up, we persevere, we you know, we're gritty, we're tenacious, we never give up. And I'm looking for a story that somebody can share about a loss that you've had with a customer. So Mark yells out, Jim Steele, Morgan Stanley. And I'm like, what? And so Tony Robbins says, where's Jim Steele? And Mark pushes me up on stage and Tony Robbins doesn't know that this is kind of my kickoff. He just thinks I'm a sales rep that had been calling on Morgan Stanley. So half the people in the audience are laughing like, what is this? Is this stage or what? So Tony calls me up and he says, so Jim, tell me about this terrible loss that you had. So I explain, and the, the quick story was we had closed a big deal at Citibank back in 2009 for Smith Barney, which was part of Citibank. It's mm -hmm. their global wealth management. And it was a huge deal that I was the executive sponsor on. I worked tirelessly with the team to close this deal. And it was a game changer, just like the, there's a Merrill Lynch story that was even more of a game changer before that. But this was us taking over Wall Street. We were like just going one by one, just like dominoes after Merrill Lynch. Now we got Citibank with Smith Barney. Well, 
six months later, they all of a sudden announced this, the sale of Smith Barney from Citibank to Morgan Stanley. So Mark and I go proudly walking into Morgan Stanley, say, we're so happy to have you as a customer. And the chief operating officer looks at me and his name's Jim Rosenthal. He looks at me and Mark and he says, well, thanks, but we're not interested in Salesforce. We will not be needing your services. So I said, well, you don't understand. This is a binding contract. It's a three-year contract. He said, that's, yeah, that's fine. And he basically kicked us out. He said, we're not interested. And they paid the bill. This is a Wall Street firm. And it was devastating because the churn is what kills you. When you have that attrition from a customer, especially a brand name customer like City and Morgan Stanley, this ripples through the industry. Everyone yeah. hears about this, right? So we were devastated. We were like, how are we going to turn this around? So he pulled all this out of me. I think still- He being Tony. Tony. And I'm like on stage and he's- it's and like he thinks a, you're like the rep on the yeah, deal. Yeah. And he's like, how did you feel? What did you tell your family when you heard this? How did you report this to your management? And he's thinking, I have a sales manager, reports a regional manager, reports a <laughs> VP of sales. Ultimately, I said, well, my manager was not very understanding. <laughs> and it was Mark. <laughs> so there's a little bit of humor in it, but it was, uh, it was humiliating at the same time because I was being hung up there to dry. And right. then, so he brought me down, like, how did I not anticipate this? And how did I let this happen? And he really brought me down to a point where I felt so bad. And then, then he built me back up. He said, all right, well, let's talk about how we're going to go and re-engage with Morgan Stanley. And the things that we talked about are the things that I've always believed in my life that with sales, if you don't like your customer or you blame something on your customer, that will carry through with the way you interact with the customer. There's no way you can hide that. Mm -hmm. You have to be genuine. And if you're mad at your customer, it's okay to tell them you're mad. You, you can tell them, hey, I'm really unhappy about this, but I am committed <laughs> to turn you around. I know you don't like us right now, but let me tell you something. I'm not going away. It was kind of like when my daughter, you know, she was mad at me when I was divorcing her mom. I, I said, I'm not going away. I'm here for you. I'm, and I kept going back and I said, it's unconditional love. I love you. I'm going to be here. Now it's very different when you take that to business, but I, I kind of had that conviction with the mm -hmm. customer. I said, look, you may hate us now, but we're going to earn your trust. We're going to earn your business over time. I don't know how long it's going to take us, but I know that we have the best solution for you. And I know we can do better than what we've done in the past. And we're going to keep coming back until we earn your business. And then we're going to make you showcase customer success story. That's incredible. Can I tell you two stories that are very similar to the stories that you just shared about yourself. I don't even know if you remember, I'm sure, well, I'm sure you remember, but I don't think you really recognize the impact that some of this had on them, similar to some of the impacts that it's had on, on you. So Ryan Barreto. I know Ryan, he's down in, he's at in Atlanta. He's at, yep, yeah. yep, he's at, he actually just yeah. moved to Nashville recently. Oh, got it. And yeah, he recently moved to Nashville. He's at Sprout Social. And he shared two stories about you in anticipation of this. One, you were in the office of Salesforce in New York City, and there was a brand new enterprise sales rep that had just come out of training who was managing some of the Wall Street banks for Salesforce. 
and you're in the kitchen and he's in the kitchen and you start asking him questions. You know, what do you do here? What's your patch? Are you excited? Is the company giving you what you want? That kind of thing. And he's kind of bragging about how he's managing these big enterprise accounts on Wall Street. And he's going off on this thing, kind of the hot shot. And at the end, he asked you, Jim, what do you do? I don't even think he knew your name. He said, what do you do? And you said, oh, I'm, I'm also in sales. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Do you yeah, remember this? I, I do remember. <laughs> and that's happened a number of times. So many times you just want to tell people, oh, I'm like so-and-so. And, you know, that doesn't buy you anything except people think, okay, you're kind of full of yourself, you know? So yeah, I, I do remember that. And they say in sales, you know, the first person that, that talks sometimes loses, mm -hmm. right? And, and I don't always subscribe to that concept, but I do subscribe to listening. You know, listening is a really important part of selling. And what I tell people is, if you can really show the patience and take the time to listen to people, first of all, you connect with them. They are like, oh, he, he's listening to me. He genuinely wants to learn from me. And if you listen, first of all, you can use that to your advantage, certainly in selling, because now you're doing active listening. You're learning about what makes them tick and what their issues are, what their top imperatives are. You can take that and play that back to them. Mark Benioff labeled it because I used to say, Mark, you got to listen, then you got to validate, you got to inspire. So he calls it LVI. He says, yeah, Jim's LVI methodology. And to me that the listen part is you, you do active listening and it's informed listening. Like you don't ask a customer, oh, how's your business doing when they just announced their worst loss in company mm -hmm. history? You say, hey, I understand. I know you have a lot of challenges and on this and that. Help me understand, like, where do you see the the biggest concern. And you just pull that out of them. And customers like to talk. They want to know that. And, and so many salespeople show up and they just want to talk because you're excited. We tend to be A type personalities, you know, type A. So we, we like to talk and the customer is going to, they're going to shut you out if you're doing all the talking, right? So you want to engage with them and get them feeling comfortable talking. And it's a trick because you, you're excited to tell them about your products and services, but you know, if you showed up at Salesforce right now with a customer and started to talk, I mean, we have so many products and services, our, our market spans at such a wide spectrum that you would miss the mark. So it's important to pull it out of them to ask the questions and then play it back to them. And you play it back to them in their vernacular, the words that you learn from them about their business. So you're playing back to let them know that you now understand. So you're kind of, that's the validation stage. So you're listening, you're validating. And then the inspire part is, okay, now, now that I understand what you're trying to accomplish, let me talk to you about some potential solutions. By the way, this could be a sales call. It could be a sales campaign over many months or a year, but I, I view it like, if I'm going into a call with a customer, I'm thinking, okay, listen and learn, ask questions, ask questions, and then play it back to them in their language, not Salesforce language or whatever company you're, you're coming from. And then the inspire part, it could be a demo. It could be a proposal that nails exactly what the customer talked to you about. They're like, wow, mm -hmm. he really listened or the team really listened. So those are lessons 
I know you asked the question about in the coffee room, but listening is so important. And the storytelling is part of the inspiration part. I tell stories to, if you're talking about a product and speeds and feeds and pricing, that doesn't inspire. That's like informative, but it doesn't inspire. But if you're telling a story about how another customer had a similar challenge and the way they addressed it, and here's what they saw, and you use names and you you connect them with other people, that's when you bring it to life. That's the inspiration part, you know, the listen, validate and inspire. So that's the process I like to teach. It's incredible. You know, that story that you were telling about Don Smith and at Michael Two's. So Ryan had a similar story about him and you, where there was a meeting that you were holding and it was very important customers. And it was you and a few other key executives at Salesforce, one of whom was Ryan's boss at the time. His boss got sick and he couldn't make it. And he said, Ryan, I need you to go. And Ryan said, I was way out of my league. And it was me and Jim and a couple other Salesforce, very senior execs, and then very, very important customers of ours or potential customers. And after the dinner, the customers wanted to go out for more drinks and you immediately went up to him and almost like you just had a sixth sense about it. And you just said, Hey, you're coming. No ifs, ands, or buts. He didn't say anything about it. You just immediately went up to him and you said, glad you're here and you're coming with us. You know, he was reflecting back and when we were talking yesterday about this and he just said, look, as a young African-American in my career, that just gave me so much so much confidence. And it just reminds me so much of the stories that you shared about yourself at a young age. I remember when I took this branch manager job with sales with IBM, sorry, back in 1988, there were 300 branches in the country and New York Financial, unfortunately, because of the financial downturn and everything in the late 80s, the Black Friday was one of those, you know, in, in October of 87. Anyway, the Wall Street financial office was really in trouble. And when I joined that branch, I said, okay, we're going to change our mindset. We're going to go from worst to first. You know, we had this campaign worst to first. And one of the things is I talked to people like what was broken. It's not just the economy. You can't just say we're like a ship on the ocean, just up and down with the, the waves and the tide. We should be like a destroyer kind of going through the waves and what's broken. They said, well, we've not been empowered. It's a very tops down management culture that's been driving this office for many years. And we don't feel like we have a voice, the salespeople. So I remember there was an org chart that IBM was very good on these org charts and they had, you know, me at the top and they had all my managers and all their people and 200 people. It was like this big elements chart, you know, on the wall outside my office. And I remember listening to this and thinking, IBM is a very hierarchical company at that point. So I took the org chart and I flipped it upside down. So now I'm at the bottom. I had all the salespeople at the top and the management. I said, look, let me make it clear. I said, we're all here to support you. I said, you are the ones on the firing line every single day. Our ability to pull together the right resources to support you will, will determine our success here. And so from now on, think of yourselves at the top of the pyramid and we're all here to just to support you. And that mindset 
really made a difference in terms of the empowerment. The salespeople felt like, wow, we'll test them, you know, and they tested me a lot on that. But I've seen it too often where the management team, they get briefed by their sales team and then the management team has to brief the top executives and they're all going in on the calls. But if you don't show that the person that has the most familiarity with that customer, the most knowledge, if you don't show them the respect in front of the customer, then how is the customer ever going to respect them? Why would the customer ever entrust them with, with decisions knowing that their own management isn't even putting them into the game, right? And this is, this is another kind of, I won't call it a pet peeve, but it's something that I pick up when I talk to sales people. I always tell them, look, never give your power away. When you're in front of a customer and the customer says, your pricing is too high. That We hear this every day from customers, right? Your pricing is too high. And if you're the sales rep that's responsible for that customer and you say, you know, I'm sorry, I'd love to give you a better price, but my manager won't approve it. They're going to go straight to your manager. Yes. Why would they waste time with you? It's like if you're going in to buy a car and the sales person that's selling to you says, oh, I have to go check the guy in the back room. You follow that guy. You want to go in, to the back room. You go to the back room. Yeah. Why, why are you wasting your time with a, an intermediary? You, know, you, you want to go right to the source. So I tell the sales team, look, it's okay to say no to a customer, but it's important for them to know that you're supporting denying them this price reduction. So in mm-hmm. other words, you go and you say, look, I hear what you're asking for, but honestly, that's not a good deal for us. I can't support that. That's better than saying, oh, I would give it to you, but so-and-so up the line will reject it, will deny it. It just put yourself in a position of power. We have so many great salespeople at Salesforce. They are really the general managers or the CEOs of their accounts. They have all access to all these resources, including the ex- all the executives in Salesforce. And we're at their bacon call. They have to respect everyone's time and they have to be careful when you're bringing people in to make sure that it's a productive, constructive meeting, but you don't want to waste people's time. But you as the salesperson have so much power to control who can support you as long as you're thoughtful about it and create the right compelling business case. When Salesforce makes decisions about product, So one example, when Salesforce bought Slack, did Mark come to you and say, Jim, is this fucking crazy? Does any (laughs) customer actually want this? Do they use you as the voice of the customer in a decision like Slack? No, (laughs) no, the, the quick answer. Well, with Slack, I think that was an easy one because they were growing so fast and had so many common Salesforce customers. So what happens is all of us in sales and and when I was the president running all the sales for many years, yes, of course, I would provide regular feedback to the product team. Our chief product officer is a guy named David Schmeyer, who's amazing. He was the product exec at Siebel back in the day. He knows more about CRM than probably any executive out there. And he came in through an acquisition a couple of years ago that Salesforce called Velocity, that he had created a business focused on industry solutions 
running on the Salesforce platform. Anyway, he's so embedded in customer deals. The teams love to bring him in because he's such a great listener. Yeah. And what I will tell you is in the early days of Salesforce, one of the things that's unique about Salesforce is you can look at every single feature that we deliver as a service to our customers. And you know, because it's a service, which of those features are being used by the customers, which are actually, you know, customers are engaging with. So many software products before Salesforce were built by engineers kind of in a dark room, you know, in a vacuum. And they, yeah, they would have done their market research, but they launch it and it's like, let's hope that the world embraces this product, right? And with Salesforce, first of all, we wouldn't have one big product announcement every year or two or three. It would be three every year that we'd tune the product in terms of performance, security, and new innovations in terms of new products. So it wouldn't be a giant release that was all consuming for a whole year or so. It was more of like every four months, something would come out. So you could see the uptake by the customer. And Mark said, basically, he put the product team on notice that if your product that you built is not being used by the customer, you just built something for the sake of an engineering whim versus a market need. And there's no room for that in this company. In a SaaS business, you can weed out pretty darn quick, you know, which products and services are actually delivering value and which aren't. I feel like you're not done. I don't know. I sit across the table from you and I'd say I'm pretty energetic. I still think I, sometimes I feel like I'm a racehorse tied up in an open field. Like I got a lot of runway to go. I still feel that from you. Let me ask you a hypothetical. And this is crazy. But if I was like, hey, Jim, like in the Kleiner portfolio, like I think we have the next Salesforce. It's got 50 million of revenue. Would you do it? Would you take that on right now? Do you have the energy to do something like that? Well, see- I left Salesforce six and a half years ago, partly because I wanted to go roll the dice and do it over again. You know, I had been super successful in those 12 years and I I loved everything I was doing and what we had built at Salesforce, but I got that bug to go do it again. And, you know, when you're getting recruited by the outside and everyone's coming after us at Salesforce because of our experience and because Mm -hmm. of our success. So we get inundated from the headhunters and other companies and when you're being sold to every deal sounds great. You know, they all sound amazing. Like, Oh, this is the new Salesforce. And I, I got lured into that when I left six and a half years ago. And unfortunately you find that what drives Salesforce, what makes it so unique is the values are all around trust, customer success, innovation, and equality. Those are And those aren't just words that people throw out and say, oh, everyone has their vision statement. We live in and breathe these values every single day. And that's very unique. And not every company you find has that same level of integrity, same level of trust with their customers. They're not delivering the same value. And I went to another startup that did carry a lot of those. It just happened to be based in New York City. And when COVID hit it, was probably not the best place for me to commute to from Park City, you know, Mm. for that period of time. So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to come back to Park City and start to think about getting on boards or working with VCs or PE companies. 
And that's when Mark called me and he threw out this proposition that, hey, we want you to come back and do a lot of what I did before, getting engaged in these big strategic customers and doing what I love to do. And it's so impactful because you're always out there with customers. And I love what I do. And it's kind of like maybe an old ball player going back to their team that they, got drafted, the, by. they got drafted by to kind of, you want to retire your number there? Right. I don't want to retire my number for at least five years though. I've got a lot more life in front of me, a lot more in my business life, my career, but my passion, my love of what I do and the people and the combination of the values, the leadership in the market, the opportunity to make a, an impact have never been greater than with Salesforce. And I said that about IBM for many years and I love IBM after 23 years there, but Salesforce is a unique company and I don't see myself going off to do any other startups again or other yeah. businesses. I, this is my home. You know, well, and you're home. doing deals where you want to be in front of customers. I was with John D'Agostino last night for dinner. And oh, you know, I love John. <laughs> He's and, the best. And speaking of you being in front of the customer doing deals, I said, what's his superpower? What's Jim's superpower? I'm going to see him tomorrow. Just, what, what else do I need to know about him? And he said, Jubin, if I was, <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face. <laughs> if I was negotiating with that rocket man in North Korea, I would send Jim Steele. <laughs> that might mean he's trying to get rid of me, you know? <laughs> That's pretty funny. I thought that was John hilarious. is, oh, he's a character. He's such a character. That is funny. <laughs> anyway, I'm on borrowed time here. I could keep going for hours, honestly. I wrap all of these in the same way. The first is, what does the word grit mean to you? Grit to me is being passionate, tenacious, and confident, not cocky and arrogant. It's out hustling your competition. It's not taking your customer for granted. It's somehow maintaining that underdog feeling. When everything's expected, oh, you're going to win, you're going to win, it, you kind of maybe get overconfident. I don't want people to be overconfident. I want them to be paranoid. So grittiness to me is a healthy dose of paranoia. Are you hiring any key roles that you come to mind that you're hiring for? And how would you get a hold of you if any of those things are true? So Salesforce is always hiring. We are hiring like crazy. And with sales, you always, you're churning a lot because people, they don't always fit the culture. They get burned out. They move on. They sometimes are a little bit like mercenaries, you know, to some degree. And you always need that fresh new blood coming mm -hmm. in. I don't know if Salesforce has ever paused on hiring, especially salespeople in, in capacity, because we always have more to sell. We're buying companies. We keep expanding our services. There's always more to sell to. So yes, we're hiring. We're hiring a lot of salespeople. So if you're looking for a job with a market leader, an exciting company that's never dull, it's always exciting. You're always in that leadership position. You're proud to tell people you work for a company like Salesforce with the values and the leadership that we have, the market leadership and innovation. Come knock on our door. Call and you, me. And you just might run into Jim next to the coffee, yes. next to the coffee maker and you all can go sell together. Jim, I, thank you. This was amazing. Thank you. All right, Juven. Thanks. Thanks everybody. 
That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.